0: ways in which you are bringing us life. So we pray, O Holy God, that you might receive these gifts as a sign of our gratitude, that you might empower and embolden this church to proclaim your love to our neighbors and all those we encounter. Amen. You may be seated.
1: simple as love You welcomed the children You stopped for the world We want to see kingdom is humble as humble as death his king is a savior who gave his last breath so may we die daily our pride laid to rest his kingdom is humble the broken are blessed. Alive in our waiting At work in our tears So come to us quickly Forever our prayer Kingdom is coming or Jesus come near Backwards, it flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, this world calls a curse. The small become great, and the last become the first. Your kingdom is back. i
0: bulletin, you'll see this some prayer requests in our community. I invite you to join me as we pray these together. When I say, Lord, in your mercy, we can respond together, hear our prayer. We pray for the members of our community uh, who are going through treatment for cancer this week, for Sue Dismore and Mary Thomas, for Amanda's Aunt Carol, for Harry Martin and Larry Sturgeon, and for Moim Bagum, we pray for God's blessing and peace in their life. Lord, in your mercy. Yes. We lift up a special prayer this week for Rex, for Kalong's brother who has been moved from uh, treatment to hospice this week. Uh, We pray for the family that is spending the last days, the last amount of time with him and pray for uh, his peace during this time as well. Lord, in your mercy. And we've been praying for a long time for the treatment of Sarah Armstrong, Steve Klink's niece. And unfortunately, this last Thursday, she died due to complications from her cancer. And so we pray for Steve and for his family and for all of Sarah's family as they go through this time of grief. We know that they'll need one another and that they'll need some strength from the Spirit of God during this time. Lord, in your mercy. We continue to pray for Kathy Sterling for the pain that she's been experiencing due to, due to um, some back issues. We pray that God might bless her and keep her and give her some relief Lord, in your, mercy. in your mercy. We pray for Orlina Rowe, the niece of Jane Rubish, who's continuing to recover from brain surgery, that God might be with her and give her strength. Lord, in your mercy. In your mercy. We continue to lift up Amanda and I's friend Scott, who was in a car accident um, a couple of months ago and is is continuing to recover, but it, it is just a long road um, for him to get to a place where he is okay. And so we continue to pray for him and pray for peace. Lord, in your mercy. We lift up Dick Ellsworth, who's recovering from rotator cuff surgery. Um, I saw Dick on Thursday night at our executive committee meeting, and he's really doing about as well as you can do after having your shoulder worked on as extensively as he did. So we pray for God's continued strength with him and for patience because it just takes time to get better from something like that. Lord, in your mercy. We lift up Carolyn Whedon, um, who's had one eye surgery and is having another one coming up in a few weeks, that God might provide some peace and some comfort and quick healing. Lord, in your mercy. And we pray for Charles Skiver, uh, for his diagnosis of Parkinson's, that God might be with him. Lord, in your mercy. And we pray for Dorothy Hayes, um, the pastor, or the wife of the interim pastor, Philip Hayes, who's been experiencing some dizziness. We pray that God might be with her and provide her comfort and relief. Lord, in your mercy. O holy and gracious God, we know that you are great, that you are a God who shows up in ways that we would never even expect, that you are a God whose faithfulness is more than we can account for. You are a God whose presence flows in our world, and yet, oh holy God, we don't always notice it. We know that you've promised to be with us to the end of the age, and yet we sometimes live our lives as though you have left us. We pray, oh holy God, that you might remind us time and time again of your presence. That whatever it is we are going through, whatever loss, whatever grief, whatever fear, whatever pain, we pray, oh holy God, that we might know that you are with us there. That your presence strengthens us and keeps us. We pray, oh holy God, for those that we have lifted up that we know are in those places. For folks who are sick and uncertain, for folks who are grieving the loss of a loved one, for those who aren't quite sure what tomorrow holds, we pray that they might know your presence, that they might know the strength that you do provide. Let we give you thanks, O oh God, for all that you have given us in our lives that helps remind us of your faithfulness for family and friendship and community, for the chance to share with one another your grace and peace and love and mercy. And we pray, O oh holy God, for the world in which we live. We know we live in communities that, that don't always look like they are as they should be that our world is sometimes not as loving or merciful as, or compassionate as your kingdom promises to be. But we pray, O oh holy God, that you might put it on us as a church to find ways to be your kingdom in this community, that we might find ways to proclaim your love to all of our neighbors. Oh holy God, we pray this knowing that this world needs witnesses, that it needs signs of your good news, that it needs signs of your kingdom. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, last week we began a new sermon series for Lent, The Kingdom of God is Like. And we're going through the different parables that Jesus tells about what the kingdom of God is like. And so this week we're listening to a parable that's called the laborers in the vineyard. And I'm guessing most of us have heard this one before. It it tells the story of a landowner that hires workers in the morning and agrees to pay them one thing. And then the landowner goes out later on in the day and hires more workers to do more work and then he goes out and he hires more workers in the evening to come and do more work. And at the end of the day, when it's time to get paid, he, the landowner pays each of the workers the same thing. Even though you can do the math, The people who showed up in the morning did more work. And the story tells that the, those workers that were there earliest, they're kind, of, they're kind of angry. Shouldn't we get more work? But according to the parable, That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God doesn't pay you based on how much you've worked. So I just want to start out this sermon by saying, I don't really like this parable. Uh, Just a little background on myself. uh, I have, in my adult life, worked with a lot of labor rights organizations. I even worked for a labor union when I was in divinity school. Would go around signing up workers to work for the union. And I've got to say... Uh, in the union world, seniority is really important. It's, I, I, I don't even, I don't think rare is even the word. You will not see a contract that does not dole out wages based on who's been there the longest. That is a core principle of the labor world. And so when I read this parable, I go back to that world and I think, well, this is unfair this parable kind of hits me the wrong way. And you know what? I actually think that the folks who heard this in Jesus' time would have had the same thought. That's not fair. But last week when we began talking about parables, I said that parables use common images to challenge people. And I really wonder if that's what's going on. Everybody listening to this parable would know that's not fair because everybody in this Story listening to this parable would have been in that situation before. And it might be important to mention this parable is not economic advice. If you were a landowner, don't do this. But I also think that this parable conveys an important message about the kingdom it's not fair, right? The kingdom of God is not built on the fairness of the world. And really, I think this is a story that is for those of us who have been here the longest. Those who have been in the fold the longest. This is a story meant to challenge us. And so with that, let's listen to our scripture today from Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. May God bless this reading. Well, there... Throughout the entire New Testament, there is a question that all of the authors are wrestling with that we don't always pick up on with our modern ears. There's a question that defines a lot of what the New Testament writers are trying to explain. And that question is the question of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. We hear it in Galatians 3, there is no Jew nor Gentile, but we don't always read it through the rest of scripture. But this question is really permeating almost all of the New Testament. You see, in the Jewish tradition, in in what's called the Talmud, the belief was that the Messiah, when the Messiah came, that the Messiah would, among other things, bring the Gentiles into the covenant with God. That's what the Messiah was. And Paul writes about this, if you go back to the book of Romans, Paul uses the image of a plant that has been growing. And Paul says that this new branch has been grafted onto the plant. That this branch has been connected to the plant. And so if you read that, the plant, of course, are the Jewish people. And it is their covenant with God. It is a special relationship that God formed with Israel through Abraham. And the branch that's being connected on to the plant that is coming through Jesus' ministry as the Messiah, well, that branch are the Gentiles becoming part of the people of God. And this sounds great, right? There are all of these new people coming These new people are bringing new ideas. They're bringing their energy. You have this, you can imagine in the early church, there was a lot of, oh, we've got some new friends to work with. But uh, these new people did something that new people also do, uh, which is they brought their own ideas about how things should work. The truth is when you have communities that are separate and you put them together, uh, rarely do things just work out. The way you think they're going to. This is true of just about every community ever. Uh, These new people will always bring their own questions. They'll bring their own problems to the community. They'll bring their own feelings about how the way things should be. And so there is this tension going on in the New Testament about what these Gentiles have to do to be a part of the kingdom of God. And you can hear this through the book of Acts, through most of Paul's readings. One of the main questions that's being asked is do these new Gentiles need to follow the law? And I don't mean just the Ten Commandments. I mean the 613 Jewish commandments that deal with everything from dietary restrictions to circumcision, which you can imagine is a question that the Gentiles wanted answered in a particular way but this was an argument going on in this church. Do these, new, do these new members of our community need to be like us? After all, we were here first, and they're new. They ought to have to, we've done the work. Now they need to do the work in order to belong. And so when Jesus talks about the, this parable of the labors in the vineyard, when he talks about people arriving at a different time to do the work, he's referring to exactly this situation. Those who have been a part of God's covenant for a long time, who have been doing the work for generations, and those who were showing up later. And you can imagine there's probably this sense that, that there should be a privilege for those who have been around for a while, for those who have been putting in the work. And what Jesus is saying is that's not really how the kingdom works. In fact, you could say the kingdom is unfair because it is. It flips the world on its head after all. And preference is no longer given to those who were already here It's often given to those who've just arrived. And this is an important thing about Jesus when he talks about the kingdom. The kingdom focus is not on keeping things the way they are. The kingdom is not set on keeping expectations that newcomers should adjust to the faithful. Rather, the kingdom is always calling us to make room for those who aren't here yet. The kingdom is always focused on those who are arriving late to make room for the new folks to get involved. This is a pretty good message for the church, isn't it? I think it's really hard. Any community ever, there is this impetus that, well, we're not changing for them, that we would like things to remain a certain way and we would like newcomers to adjust to us. And the kingdom continually calls us to do the opposite. It tells us to do things a little bit backwards. Because the mission of the church, the mission of the entire gospel is to make room for new folks. We resist this because we've been here the longest. We get stuck in this pattern of thinking we should have a say in how things are done, which is a simple human reaction but the gospel is this radical call to turn that upside down. And if we don't accept that it's asking us to turn our lives upside down for the sake of the good news, then we've missed something about it. After all, if you think about this parable, who are the folks who are exp- who, whose expectations need to be changed? not the newcomers, it's the folks who were there from the beginning. So the kingdom of God makes the demand on those who have been around the longest to make room for the new folks, to make room for folks who are just showing up. There was this great Christian writer who died a few years ago named Rachel Held Evans, and she wrote a lot about this issue. She wrote about the struggles that churches had when it came to new folks who were showing up, especially those who were different. Um, as a woman, she struggled with some of the more conservative churches she belonged to that didn't think she should be allowed to lead because of her gender. She actually wrote a book um, on... It's, I can't remember the name of it now. Biblical Womanhood is, is, is sort of the subtitle, where she tried to live out all the things the Bible says women should do. My favorite story is that... Uh, She went out to the edge of town and held a sign up that said, My husband is awesome. Because there's something about exalting your husband to the city. But she kind of understood that there were these new ideas that she was seeing her churches reject, that they didn't want to make room for new ideas. She became an outspoken proponent of folks in the LGBTQ community to belong in churches. She was seeing friends be rejected from congregations that didn't want to accept new folks. And so she tried to create a space and a message and a voice for folks who didn't feel like they belonged, like they were welcomed. And I imagine these were people who had shown up late to the church communities. They were met with a message that they needed to change and not that the church needed to make room for them. And I think from the perspective of the world, that makes sense. But from the perspective of the gospel, that's backwards. That's reversed. Because the kingdom of God stands in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. And in one of her most famous books, Evans writes, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Based on Jesus' parable, I think we can extend this to say that what makes it offensive is that it doesn't expect the world to change for us. It expects us to change for the sake of the world. It expects those of us who have been around the longest to make room for newcomers. Now, in the New Testament, I'll put a caveat on this a little bit, there is a strong emphasis that the Jews in these new Christian communities don't have to give up the law. This is actually a misreading of Paul. Paul thinks that if you're Jewish, you should still practice the law, that you should still follow what God and Abraham worked out in the covenant. But for those who are new to the community, for the Gentiles... They are to be welcomed as they are. And not just welcomed, they're to be given a place at the table, not just tolerated, but accepted and affirmed. This is challenging for those who have been around the longest. It's probably more difficult if you've been around even longer, like if there's like a correlation between how long you've been and how difficult it is. Because if you've done things one way for a number of, of years, it can be really hard to, to alter that. You know, I'm at this really weird point in my life. I'm, I'm younger than a lot of folks here. Uh, but I'm just reaching that point in my life where I can see 40. Uh, and I'm getting to that place where I look at some of the young people trends and I go, what? do what I remember the first time somebody told me they were on Snapchat and I refused or I watched some of the Grammys this year and I have no idea what's going on in the world of music. Like we all reach this place where we are set in our ways and it is hard to make room for what might be different or new or strange. And it can be easy to be judgmental to folks who are younger, who are bringing their own questions and their own concerns, their own styles, some of which even make us uncomfortable I'm not going to do a TikTok dance. I'm just not going to do it. And yet, I do know that, that there is this thing in Christianity which calls us to open our hearts to folks who are different than us. To open our hearts to ideas that we may struggle with. Part of being Christian is opening our hearts. It is being willing to be just a little bit different for the sake of those who aren't here yet. So how do we make rooms for these people? How do we open ourselves up to the presence of people who talk different or believe different or who look different? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 has this great passage about Christ came and though he counted equality with God instead emptied himself for our sake. And I wonder if part of being Christian is following him in that, learning to empty ourselves of our prejudice, learning to empty ourselves of our power over how things are so that we might make room for those who are to come. After all, the gospel is not the story of how God came to save one group of people It's not God-loved ex-church. It's God-loved the whole world, all of it. Maybe that seems fair to those of us. Maybe it seems unfair to those of us who have been here for a long time. Maybe it seems unfair that those who are showing up late to the party would have to conform to us or wouldn't have to conform to us. By the standards of the world, Those are unfair expectations. But in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom that Jesus is initiating, the world gets turned upside down. The world gets flipped on its head. And it's us who are called to adjust to what God is doing.